0: This podcast was recorded on September 15th, 2021. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes.
1: everybody. Welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman. Here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a very special guest. I've known him for many years. His name is Matt Hogan. Welcome to the show, Matt.
2: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
1: Yeah, so Matt is uh, one of the world's, world's, and notice I said, leading experts <laughs> uh, on crypto, ETFs, and financial technology. Uh, I did not meet him in the crypto space. I met him back in the ETF space, right, mm-hmm. where he worked at ETF.com, um, used to put on a great event down in Hollywood, Florida for the Inside ETFs conference, and an authoritarian on everything, you know, ETF as well. An author- <laughs> I think it's a authoritarian. Is, is, that what, is that the right word? He's you know? an authority? Yeah, yeah, I could, a, yeah. ETF he has authority. He's yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, you you raised me up. I, so, I you know, he's, he's pretty <laughs> much achieving world dominance, you know, uh, in, in the ETF space. So, mm-hmm. uh, after dominating the ETF world, he decided it's time to move on, and here we are in crypto land. So... Welcome again, Matt.
2: All right. I love it. Thanks for the intro. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about a little bit about your career path, too. As mm-hmm. I said, I've given you all these accolades about being one of the dominant players in the entire global economy. <laughs> um, so how'd you get there?
2: Oh, man. I started as a minor league baseball mascot. Okay. Oh, uh, that's, that's a that's a true fact. No, we started covering- well, wait, 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 wait. Stop <laughs> there. Yeah. We, no, we're going deeper into there. <laughs> so what team- uh, the Portland Sea Dogs. Portland Sea Dogs, double okay. A affiliate in Portland, Maine. Yes. Uh, at the time, they were for the Tampa Bay Rays. Now they're for the Boston Red Sox. Okay. But yeah.
1: and they're still surviving with all of the new transition with Major League Baseball and everything too, right? So far, so good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We just did a podcast recently with someone who owns the uh, he owns the Kane County Cougars outside of Illinois.
2: Ooh. Right. So
1: we we actually had a, a podcast on a little bit of baseball recently.
2: That's some good right. alliteration right. too in that name. It our is our very consonants. good. I love it. Yeah.
1: And then on top. Of that, um, when I was in college, I actually worked the scoreboard and I was a scorekeeper for the Stockton Ports. So there's a port in there, a uh, single A baseball affiliate that, um, you know, it, it ultimately led into the Giants. So, I see. You know, so I, I anyway. knew we had
2: a lot in common. Yeah, so exactly. anyway, um, so we've
1: obviously digressed. So all of us world dominators started in minor league baseball. That's right.
2: That's the place to begin your career. Um, after that, I joined a small company, two people, uh, working for a website called indexuniverse.com, which is the world's worst URL, uh, as a freelance writer. And I started writing about indexes and index funds. Uh, the first piece I actually wrote was about the, the CPI. Uh, but we, we, we evolved over time to start covering ETFs. And this was at a time when no one knew what ETFs were. Uh, you probably remember, uh, people called them EFTs. Yeah. Uh, you probably remember the Financial Times called them weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. ETFs were not liked, uh, were not well understood, and we became the leading media site covering that space. We grew that business from, uh, it was three people when I joined, eventually 70. Uh, we expanded. We created the first ETF data and rating system, which now FactSet's sets data. We built the Inside ETFs Conference. Uh, And then I ended up as a CEO of that business and sold it in 2015 and 2016. So that was my ETF journey. I told the ETF 101 story something like 500 times. Uh, and I still actually tell it today. The same slides that I've used for the last ten years remain true about ETFs, and I, I still love
1: ETFs. It's funny when you got out of the business is right when we got into the business. Right <laughs> when I met you, so uh, I wonder what that says, you know, about everything, right? So, um, and then the transition from there. You sold the business. Tell us uh, what what led you down the next path. Yeah, I, the the thing about ETFs
2: and crypto is that they've crossed for a long time because the Winklevoss twins have been trying to get a Bitcoin ETF since twenty thirteen. So I had been. Uh, aware of the space, and after I sold the business, I wanted to do uh, something else. I felt like I was polishing the head on a pin, right? I had given that ETF 101 talk 500 times. It was still the same talk. I wanted a new area uh, that was intellectually exciting, that I thought could be a multi-trillion dollar market, and where I thought that the quality of information was incredibly poor. Because the one thing I did in ETF land, which I'm pretty proud of, is try to make ETFs understandable and digestible to financial advisors. And I looked at various spaces, and there are various parts of the financial landscape that fit that, uh, that idea, where I think they could be much bigger than they are, but they're complex and poorly explained. Uh, option overlay strategies is an example, and I thought about that. Uh, but crypto, well, I'm a big fan
1: of option overlays, by the way.
2: Uh, yeah. You and I both. Yeah. Uh, and if people understood them and understood what they could do, uh, particularly during retirement, you'd have many more people allocating to that. So that was the kind of thing I was exploring. But crypto, two things were true. Uh, one, I thought it was had the potential to be an extremely significant market. And two, the quality of information was just abysmal. It was the land of hype and hyperbole. Either it was the best thing since sliced bread or it was going to destroy the world. And there was no middle ground where it was an interesting, early stage, risky technology that had a role if it developed in a certain way. And I thought I could help build that. And I was fortunate to find Bitwise, which created the first crypto index fund. I think index strategies are the optimal strategy for most investors in the crypto space. I think indexing is better in crypto than it is in the equity market. Uh, And I thought, What a chance to help build the world's largest crypto index fund
1: manager. Okay, well, you set yourself up for the next question there. (laughs) Why is indexing good in crypto and why is it superior than in, say, the equity world?
2: Sure. Um, It's good in crypto for two reasons. One reason is no one knows how this is going to develop, right? So I have a high degree of confidence that crypto and blockchain will be more important in five or ten years than it is today but a relatively low degree of confidence about what exactly that will look like, which crypto assets will win, how the market will develop, et cetera. In those sorts of scenarios, buying an index-based strategy is one of two valid approaches, the other one being find a great active manager. But active managers are hard to diligence in the crypto market. It's a very regime-dependent market. And so indexing is great from that perspective. But the more interesting reason that it's, it's great, and the reason it's better in crypto than it is in equities, is in equities, indexing is an average strategy before costs, and it generally outperforms because it's low cost. In crypto, it actually gives you an expo- uh, exposure to a factor that is really important in the crypto market, which is size. Uh, in crypto land, bigger is actually better. So Bitcoin is the most secure blockchain in the world, literally because it is the most valuable crypto asset in the world. It's the most regulated crypto asset because it's the largest and most established. It's the most liquid because it's the largest and most established. Um, and by weighting by market capitalization, uh, you, you, you get exposure to this factor, which is one of the primary drivers of value in the crypto market. Uh, so I think it's almost like a Rob Arnott style strategy on crypto. It's actually getting exposure to the factors that matter. And in equities, that's not true. You know, Apple's $2 trillion plus, It's not going to be $20 trillion dollars. Oh, um, easy there. You know, some, people,
1: some people are going to come fighting on you on that one. But.
2: Yeah, well, uh, well, regulators may, may have a question if it gets that big as well. But in crypto, bigger is literally
1: better. And, and I think that makes indexing closer to an optimal strategy. You know, so, someone told me once in, in the history of the world, you know, so a little bit of a little bit of history. There. Mm-hmm. Um, no companies ever be, dominated the entire world, you know. And so <laughs> why do you think this next one is going to? So I, I, always, I, I learned that early in my career and I, I've always thought about that, too. And so you, you brought up Ron, uh, Rob Arnott and, and kind of his way of thinking about, you know, again, the inefficiency of market cap weighting because you're paying the, the most price. What, what's the worst indexed asset class? What's the worst asset class to index? That's a great
2: question. Well, commodities are really difficult to index because there's no market capitalization of wheat. And yep. so I find all commodity indexes flawed. Yep. Um, they're uh, all strategies. They're, they're, all, they're stra- all the strategies. Yeah, right? it's not really yeah. indexing. Um, equities are probably the worst uh, asset class to, to, to index. Bonds, maybe. Actually, let me, let me correct that. Equity totally wrong. Bonds are obviously a terrible
1: I, you thing. You have a winner there. That's bonds exactly where I was thing. going, Matt. Yeah, yeah. yeah, The more <laughs> debt you own, the bigger the wet. the more money you let, lend to somebody. It uh, yeah. doesn't make any sense. Right? I haven't right. had enough coffee this morning. All right, it yeah, is all right. literally, yeah. it's it's backwards yeah. as a strategy. It's it, completely backwards, Completely right? backwards. Yeah, The more you borrow, the least credit-worthy you are, so I should lend you more money. <laughs> let's right, let's yeah. load up on that. <laughs> right, so.
3: I was gonna say i think it's pretty interesting so we've made a bit of a leap for some people i think on our listeners here or within our listeners here because we're talking about bitcoin alongside traditional financial assets already so many people are still trying to make that bridge that gap and see where that bridge is taking cryptos is it going to be a financial asset or is it just something that people shouldn't even consider as a financial asset alongside their traditional portfolios so how do we bridge that? Or it seems like that gap has already been bridged in this conversation. How, how do we do that? Why does it deserve a place in the portfolio?
2: Ooh. Um, it deserves a place in a portfolio for two reasons. For one, it's catnip from a portfolio construction perspective. This is an asset that has high potential returns, low correlations to everything else, and is liquid. And when you can put an asset that has those three characteristics into a diversified portfolio, and you rebalance, which is an important thing, uh, the impact on the portfolio's returns historically have been phenomenal. There's never been a three-year period in crypto's history where adding it to a portfolio and rebalancing uh, didn't contribute to your absolute and risk-adjusted returns. So if you remove the word crypto from it and you just call it asset X, everyone in the world would have a little bit of it in their portfolio. Um, the, The second reason is I think it's a big part of the future of how technology will work, it's a little bit complex because different crypto assets are very different. So like Bitcoin and Ethereum are the two largest crypto assets. I think they have very different roles in the world in the future. One I think is more akin to digital gold, that's Bitcoin. One is more akin to like a software as a service disruptive software technology. Um, But I do think in the future. Crypto is going to be how all financial assets move and settle around the world. It's a big statement, um, but, but I, I'm pretty sure that's true. And so investors want exposure to it in the same way they want exposure to other disruptive technologies.
1: So on that front, too, explain, explain that last point there.
2: Sure. Um, uh, the current financial system is terrible. Uh, that's the starting point. If you were to go to Bank of America today and say, I want to wire $10,000 to London, uh, they would say it takes two business days and the fee is between 1% and 4%. This is on their web page. Bank of America is one of the largest banks in the world. It's got 240,000 employees. It's got offices in 38 countries. It's got a $4 trillion balance sheet. And it takes two days to get money to London. On the Bitcoin blockchain, the other day, someone moved a $1 billion. It settled in 10 minutes, and the fee was $2. Blockchains, because of their nature, because they're one database that's available everywhere but nobody controls, allow you to move financial instruments and settle, settle them with finality virtually instantaneously. And while people outside the financial industry don't understand how slow the financial industry is, it is the slowest industry in the world. We're settling stock in two days. This is ridiculous. What year are we in? Um, and because it offers that settlement finality, I think there's a sort of a manifest destiny that all assets will eventually move over blockchains. Uh, uh, because I don't see how the other systems can
1: catch up. Yeah, I mean, it is the speed of it. I mean, the criticism is on the speed side is always, you know, Visa does X number of transactions per second, where you know, the blockchain takes a bit longer. Um, and so how, how do you see the technology catching up with that? Is this like a Moore's Law phenomenon where we just need more computing power? Is it more optimal algorithms? Like, how do you think about that in, in improving the speed and performance of, of the transaction, especially... If we're taking all of our transactions Mm -hmm. into that direction yeah it's not
2: ready at all in fact it gets clogged up today one of the one of the top 10 blockchains like sort of broke yesterday because there was so much demand usually excess demand is a good sign something you want to invest in but it's still a very real problem um there there are two solutions uh working in the market today one is to make the underlying blockchains much more efficient and already people have developed blockchains that are significantly more efficient than Bitcoin and Ethereum and can do thousands of transactions a second, can keep up uh, with Visa. The other way is what's called level uh, layer two, where you process some of the transactions outside of the blockchain in independent channels and then periodically write them to uh, the blockchain. The, the beautiful thing about this is there are literally hundreds of experiments funded by billions of dollars of venture capital, looking to solve this problem. It's not always true in early stage technology investing that going from zero to one is the hardest thing and one to 100 is inevitable, but it's usually true. And so crypto has gone from zero to one. That example of Bitcoin moving a billion dollars in 10 minutes for a fee of two bucks, that's zero to one. I have a high degree of confidence we'll get from one to 100. I expect it to be a combination of that uh, layer one and layer two working side by side.
1: So we, we talked a lot uh, with some, um, again internally, we've had some podcasts ourselves talking about the you know the central bank digital currency, mm-hmm. right the CBDC. So how do you think that plays a role in the whole crypto space? And does it become a competing asset to the existing cryptos today? Or is it complementary? It has a different function. What is your take on the CBDC world?
2: Yeah, it's inevitable for the reasons I spoke earlier. It's the way all financial assets will move. And my eight-year-old child is not going to be paying with physical dollars. He's going to be using a central bank digital currency. Um, it's complementary. I actually think it will do a huge amount to accelerate the daily use of crypto assets. The, to take the Bitcoin example as the simplest one, people ask me all the time, will a U.S central bank digital currency destroy the primary use case for Bitcoin? And of course the answer is no. The dollar hasn't destroyed the primary use case for gold. One is centralized and one is decentralized and they serve different functions in the world. Um, A central bank digital currency will be what we use to pay for goods on a day-to-day basis. I don't think crypto is what we're going to use in the US to pay for goods on a day-to-day basis in any time soon. I think all it will do is like, teach people how to have a wallet, teach people how to send crypto assets. And people will use different crypto assets for different things. I think it'll be a boom for the crypto space when it happens, and I, I think it's inevitable.
1: So let's talk about the other side of that equation, the regulation, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got Gary Gensler, who you know, uh, I remember working in the commodity space. He was not a friend of the commodity <laughs> space. He, he created the Commodity Modernization Act, which essentially said, you can't buy commodities. <laughs> Um, I just, you know, <laughs> Gary and I don't, don't have a good relationship there. Uh, but the thing about it is, which, again, it's one of those things that belongs in portfolios. Um, but if you think about what Gensler's done for the last few years before becoming the SEC chairman, he was you know teaching classes on crypto blockchain and the likes mm-hmm. so w- what is your view and again i, I don't want to get political or say anything about gary here <laughs> beyond what we've already done but you know what what do you think because you know when he comes out and he gives speeches he seems pro crypto but he keeps denying the etf he keeps denying some of these vehicles mm-hmm. so you know how, how do you think about that and and where you know, the financial system kind of um, allows the regulation or, you know, again, their job is to protect the, the naive, right? That's what they're trying to do.
3: Uh, I actually have an add-on to that theme, too, is just, I mean, is it within their grounds? You know, yeah. Gary's, is that within his playground, you know, the crypto mm. space? And yeah, mm. just I mean, you see kind of the... Uh, My libertarian friend, Sam, over there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah... It, w- Where is the focus there? I mean, does he have the ground to stand on there? Because we saw recently with one of the the exchanges here in the U.S., it's it's litigation is the avenue that's being pursued, right? Mm-hmm. Sue, threatening to sue. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a unusual way to take it. Th- that's America. <laughs> sued. That's true. <sued. laughs> that's true. <sued. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> They're a little bit more direct, the lawyers though. always win. Yeah, right? SEC is yeah. a little bit yeah. more direct, though, and it's you know, this seems a little bit more secure, this.
2: Yeah, that is true. Regulation by litigation is never the way to go in an ideal uh, scenario. And I think the answer, unfortunately, is nuanced. What Gensler has been saying recently, to answer, answer your question, is that some crypto assets are securities and some are not it has to do with how decentralized they are bitcoin not a security wouldn't be covered by the securities and exchange commission it's literally the first word in their name other crypto assets may be and so i think he's trying to expand his regulatory authority over the crypto space uh as sort of like a regulatory land grab uh, (laughs) because he wants to um he wants to have that he wants to have that as part of his legacy Uh, the The thing about crypto is it needs better regulation. So we should start from that premise. Things like AML and KYC are going to be part of the crypto
1: ecosystem in the future. So for our listeners out there, that's the anti-money laundering provisions and the know your client. Those are big banking acts, right? Those
2: are big banking acts, yes. And I don't see a world where US regulators allow crypto to exist without clear applications of those basic rules. It also prevents huge narrative risk that could harm the crypto industry. All you need is one bad actor using crypto for a nefarious purpose, and it's on the front page of The Wall Street Journal, and crypto has a black eye. So I think crypto needs some level of regulation to set it free. Um, What's unfortunate is that regulators seem unwilling to give clarity on crypto of what the lines are, what needs to be applied, and what could be allowed to exist outside of that. and that's going to delay the sort of economic growth that we could see from crypto if that's not cleared up. But you know, it's challenging. We're applying laws built around uh, that have been on the books for 80, 90 years to digital assets. Uh, it doesn't fit super cleanly. Even some of the words that regulation is based on don't apply very well to like, decentralized finance. Uh, are smart contracts even legal contracts is a question? Uh, do you need to uh, use regulations to protect against counterparty risk if you have instantaneous settlement and everything is collateralized. You may not need any of those regulatory frameworks. I think it's going to be a messy year and a half of regulation, but I'm actually increasingly confident that we'll come through in a positive place. Okay,
1: well, and when you think about just the, the way you use the anecdotes and the bad actors, and you know that's what's the first thing Congress is going to say, right? I'll look at this one example, and you use that as the illustrative <laughs> example. The anecdote is that everybody's a drug dealer and right. you know running guns and you know harming the world, right? Um, but what what do you make of the ability for people to create these coins in that same area? So we think about the celebrities pumping coins and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, you know, there's been meme coins, you know, again, uh, some are very popular um, and they're looking for They're like the solution looking for a problem in some instances, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. you know, how do you think about that as an investor, right, too? And you're talking about KYC, AML. Well, how do you do diligence on this stuff?
2: Oh, that's a great question. You should run away screaming from most of that stuff. It's, it's nonsense and it's bad for crypto and it will go to zero. Um, that's true of, of some of the NFT stuff as well. What we do from our index-based strategy is we have a series of relatively complex screens that screen out assets that we don't think are appropriate for institutional investors. So if you were to look uh, at a list of the assets by market cap on a website like coinmarketcap.com, a popular crypto data website, and you were to compare that to our Bitwise 10 index, which holds the 10 largest assets, you'd see that our 10th asset is like number 22. Uh, And we screen out about a dozen assets. The reasons we screen them out, we think they may be in violation of federal securities laws. You can't custody them with a regulated custodian. They don't actually have robust underlying technology in their blockchain that allows you to hold those assets in a secure fashion. Their blockchain has a fundamental security risk built into it. This is a frontier market. Even something as simple as an index-based strategy has to have a lot of diligence and rules around it before you decide what goes into it. Um, so it is the case. I mean, this is a good example of where regulation is needed. It is the case that investors can be harmed by these celebrity coins and meme coins and things that they don't understand because they're not applying this level of diligence. Um, that's one of the places that companies like Bitwise try to try to fit in.
1: Yeah. Okay. So when you do that too, let's let's flip that question around. What makes a crypto asset quality what what screens positively in your universe when you're thinking about things so what attributes and metrics yeah. are you looking for
2: sure uh it needs to be sufficiently decentralized to in our view not be at risk of being deemed a security by federal securities regulators because that would crush the liquidity ecosystem it needs to have a blockchain that allows you to custody the assets in a secure way which is a lot of words but there's some blockchain technologies that you can't actually custody in a true offline fashion.
1: Well, explain that to me, though. We're, we're custodying uh, an asset which is just this digital one and zero. How yeah. are you actually custodying this asset, or am oh, I just too no. simple-minded on this?
2: It is digital ones and zero. When you own a crypto asset, what you own is a password. The simplest way to think about how you custody that password is you could write it down on a piece of paper and put it in a bank vault uh, and guard the bank vault. And as long as no one broke into the bank vault, no one could ever steal your crypto asset. In practice, the way institutional custodians like Fidelity and Coinbase do it is much more complex. They shard that password into multiple pieces Different people have to agree to put it together in different ways, sort of Ocean Eleven style, right? <laughs> um, so it's very. I was thinking John Nash. Well, <laughs> well there you go. <laughs> code breakers, but okay, uh, I'll, I'll take uh,
1: Oceans is way more sexier.
2: To, to each yeah. their own, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm really fun at the movies, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, some blockchains, however, have, and, and this is a minority of them today, but are, are technologically immature. Uh, This may be a little deeper than you want to go, but I'll give you an example of it. Um, If I want to send you Bitcoin, uh, I can do that without exposing uh, my password or my ownership of that coin into the internet network. I can sign a transaction, to use the analogy, I could sign a transaction in my bank vault that says I'm sending this Bitcoin to you. And then I can walk out of my bank vault and send it out there. Um, There's certain blockchains that don't have the technological sophistication to do that. You have to sort of bring the whole asset out of the bank vault, show the network that you own it, and then send it. And that process of bringing it out of the bank vault every time before you want to send it exposes you to risk, risk of loss. Uh, uh, Custody issues for an asset manager like Bitwise would be a business ending event. So we can't own assets like that as a very sort of narrow example. In terms of what else outside investors, not Bitwise, but outside people looking at crypto should look at to see if a blockchain is interesting, you should look at things like, are developers developing on that blockchain? A way to think of a blockchain is almost like an internet for moving money. Are people writing code to use that capability? And different blockchains have different number of users. You can look at, are people paying fees to process transactions on that blockchain. So like, if you want to use the Ethereum blockchain to process some decentralized finance application, you have to pay fees. You can look at how much are those fees as an indicator of interest. You can see whether there is any real use. Uh, And some blockchains there are, and
1: some blockchains there aren't. So you're talking about how investors can really think through this. You know, what do you think about kind of some of the innovation that you've seen when you're looking on these platforms, too? Right. Because you're talking about developers, you're talking about doing transactions, replacing the swift transaction system Mm -hmm. uh, with a more instantaneous settlement. What are some of the more interesting ideas you've seen being uh, promulgated through the crypto uh, network?
2: Yeah. There are a couple that are amazing. I'm going to give you two DeFi examples. Uh, DeFi is decentralized finance. You can think of it as using software to disrupt traditional financial services. Uh, We have a DeFi index fund. The largest holding it is is a a blockchain called Uniswap. Uh, Uniswap, if you haven't heard of it, you can think of it as a decentralized Coinbase. So Coinbase is a crypto brokerage. You can go on with Bitcoin and trade it for Ethereum, or you can trade your Ethereum for Solana in the same way you would use Charles Schwab to trade stocks. Uh, It's one of the most successful venture-backed companies in recent history. It came out of Y Combinator. went public at a valuation of $85 billion. Great business. Uniswap didn't exist a few years ago, but it's a software program that lets you do the same thing as Coinbase. It exists on a blockchain. You can take your... Your bitcoin to uniswap and trade it for ether you can take your ether and trade it for solana same service but there's no company there are no employees there's no offices etc when i say that to people people think like matt you're talking about like the jetsons this is years off it's not last month uniswap did something like 50 billion dollars in trading volume and it generated about 200 million dollars in fees uh if this were a startup and it didn't exist two years ago, and it was a new brokerage, and today it was doing $200 million in monthly fees, it'd be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. right? It'd be, the person who started it would be lauded as greatest entrepreneur of our time. But because it's a crypto startup, uh, and it's, its logo is a pink unicorn, people are dismissive of it. But that's, that's just one example. I'll give you another example. The second largest asset in our DeFi index is Aave. One way to think of Aave is like the prime broker of crypto. You can go to Ave with Bitcoin, post it as collateral, and get a loan in another crypto asset. People are processing loans for hundreds of millions of dollars uh, with collateralized assets. They get processed in a minute. Uh, try to open a prime brokerage account and get a $100 million loan in a minute. Uh, it's not going to happen. And, and there are all sorts of issues with these things. There are regulatory issues. There are disclosure issues. Um, their their, their risk issues to individual investors. But when you pause for a second and think about it, uh, if it's the case that we can start a decentralized exchange that's doing $200 million in fees a few years after it began, or if it's the case that we can create a crypto prime brokerage that allows instantaneous loans of hundreds of millions of dollars, um,
1: imagine what that will be like in three or four years. It's pretty pretty incredible. Uh, It's pretty exciting. I, those you've not seen this, you know, he's smiling too. He's very very
2: excited about <laughs> yeah. this
3: too. Yeah, know, like so. it, the passion. Well, I was going to say, I, I kind of want to bring it back to something you were talking about when you first started out in the index industry on ETFs, and you created the ETF 101, one your presentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and that hadn't changed in years, and mm-hmm. you got tired of using it. Just from the conversations we're having right now, I, I it just seems like the evolution of crypto assets, or you know, not even blockchain crypto assets. Seems like there's going to be a lot more innovation going on here. Are you going to, do you think you're going to be able to create this crypto assets 101 deck and be using the same deck and just distill into these same basic concepts and use it for the next five, 10 years, or even the next one or two years? A hundred percent. And I already
2: have it. I think I can get anyone to understand crypto and blockchain in three minutes.
3: My I, mom wants to hear it. I do, too, actually. So okay. Are you explain are, it to can, my mom? Here we go. Can I do it? Three Absolutely.
1: minutes? Let's do uh, it. Timer go, if you're on your Bloomberg terminal. <laughs> I think it's now called <laughs> time. They've, they've made it more efficient oh on there, man, too. They is, dropped the R.
2: This is going to be brutal. Yeah. Um, everyone talks about crypto and blockchain, but no one could tell you what a blockchain is. Here's the way I think of it. Everyone knows what PayPal and Venmo is, Right. It's the most downloaded app in America, 200 million users. Why do we use PayPal and Venmo? We use it because I can send you $20, Jeff, and you'll get it instantaneously. Mm -hmm. This is a service people want. What no one asks is why Venmo is fast and our traditional banking system is slow. The reason Venmo is fast and our traditional banking system is slow is Venmo is one database. When I want to send you $20, Venmo can look. It says, Matt has $20. He hasn't sent it to anyone else. I'll just transfer it to Jeff as fast as you can change a line in an Excel document. Uh, Banks are slow because if I send you a check from my Wells Fargo account and you deposit it at Bank of America, Bank of America has to check with Wells Fargo to make sure my account's in good standing, that I haven't sent multiple checks on the same thing. It takes two days, as we discussed earlier. In other words, one database is fast, multiple databases are slow. All a blockchain is, the whole breakthrough, it solved a computer science problem that existed for 30 years, which is how do you have one database that's available everywhere in the world, that everyone agrees is true, that updates in real time, that everyone can see what the state of is, but without a company controlling it. It's the first single decentralized database that's available to everyone. And because it is that, because it's Venmo without Venmo, it can settle any financial transaction in the world almost instantaneously, the same way Venmo settles my $20 payment to you. Uh, Because you can do that, you can program money like software. The thing that stopped you from programming money like software was that it didn't settle instantaneously, and you had all these delays. So things like trust agreements don't need high-priced lawyers. You can program a software program that says, give a million dollars to John when he turns 28. That's just two if-then statements. Uh, And because you have one database that's available everywhere, but no one controls, for the first time in history, you have digital property rights. Before a blockchain, the only way I owned my Wells Fargo bank account number was because Wells Fargo had a database that says Matt owns this bank account. Otherwise, anyone could copy those 10 numbers a million times, infinitely. Once you have a database that everyone agrees with, but no individual person can monkey or change, you can own a digital good in the same way that I own this phone, or you could own a Picasso on your wall. Digital property rights programmable money and the an instantaneous settlement of any financial goods are massive primitives and they're all enabled by this single development, which is how do you have one database available everywhere that everyone agrees on, but no single party controls. And that's my, uh, that's my three minutes on
1: blockchain. So let's uh, call Mama Lau and let's see what she says.
3: <laughs> let's see, you know? let's see.
0: It makes sense to me.
1: Um, when you think about this too, there's been a lot um, spoken about you know, kind of the Non-ESG friendly nature, and I'll I'll use that phrase very loosely, Um, but just the amount of computing power, energy, um, you know, that goes into the mining uh, Mm -hmm. of these currencies. So, how are you thinking about the impacts there? As we talk about, you know, the movement within ESG and the likes, and you know, the long-term viability. Um, because as, as human beings, we, we tend to just destroy everything in our wake, right? So uh, what, what happens here as, as the evolution comes along in the crypto space? Yeah, uh, two
2: things. First, it's really E. The S&G of crypto is beautiful, right? Crypto allows for financial inclusion. It lowers costs. The costs of the financial system fall mostly on people who don't have the money to afford it. So I think it's S and G characteristics. And the G, it's self-governing, right? Exactly. Right, it's right, self-governing. Right. It's a yeah. whole new idea of governance. So I think those it scores very well on. It is the case that, uh, that Bitcoin mining consumes a lot of energy. It's also the case, two things. Uh, a big portion of that is renewable, uh, about 50%, a much larger mix. And it encourages the development of renewable technology. And more importantly, crypto is evolving to new ways of doing consensus The the burning of energy is just a way to process transactions and secure the database. There are other ways to do it that are carbon neutral. Uh, Proof of stake is a term that people throw around. Ethereum, the second largest blockchain, is transitioning from proof of work, which is that carbon intensive process, to proof of stake. I think a lot about it. uh, I think it's a lot like the automobile industry today. We all know that in the future we're going to be driving electric vehicles. Many people drive them today but we also still have a lot of uh, gas-powered cars, and we're in an evolutionary process toward this new renewable future. Crypto is the same. By the time crypto is the underpinning of, of all financial uh, assets, which is a big thing to say. I keep saying it. It's <laughs> making me nervous. Um, by the time it fulfills its full full goals, most of it will be environmentally uh, sound and environmentally friendly. Yes. So I think those concerns are, are overblown, and they're they ignore what the direction this industry is
1: going yeah well just be thankful only 14 people listen to the show including sam's mom so you know these the statements 15 now then yeah, 15. Oh, okay oh, oh she wasn't even she didn't in listen there. before <laughs> <laughs>
3: special edition for Mama allow
1: so i, I love the three-minute pitch i think you came on the under on that too i think you did a very good job appreciate what it what is the biggest thing you want someone to take away when they think about crypto they think about blockchain what do you want them to know about it You gave the anecdote or the example of how to explain it, but what do people need to know? What is the biggest educational hurdle, and why should they care?
2: That's a great question. First Um, first time I ever heard that. (laughs) Uh, For most people out there, the thing I would want them to know today is that the crypto in their mind is not the crypto industry that exists today. A lot of people are anchored on the ghosts of crypto past. Uh, a lot of people, when you say Bitcoin or blockchain, they think Silk Road, which was a, like a drugs and gun website. Or they think Mt. Gox, which was this crypto exchange that, uh, that collapsed and lost.
1: What was the guy's name? Kim? Kim uh, oh, that? yeah. The,
2: the, the, oh, Ross? Yeah. F- Ross from, yeah. Uh, from, from Silk Road. Yeah. But people are anchored on that reality. And as a result, they're reflexively skeptical of crypto. Um, The crypto of today is very different. crypto of today is a a market where Fidelity is a custodian and Jane Street is trading crypto and uh, it's an institutional market. I have another answer which I think is better. Uh, So let let me give you the other answer. So I think that's very true. Don't be anchored on crypto past. Evaluate crypto for what it is today and you'll see it as an institutional asset class. The other thing that I encounter in people is people who approach crypto in different ways end up at different sides of the spectrum. Some people approach crypto as a currency, and they have the idea that they're going to use Bitcoin to buy their local mocha frappuccino at Starbucks. And if you approach crypto that way, you end up thinking it's tulip bulbs and destined for zero. Because as a practical currency today, it's totally janky. You can't spend it many places, it's very volatile, etc. People who approach it as a technology, for all the reasons we've discussed, end up thinking that it's inevitable. And I would just encourage people who have this mental framework of Bitcoin is going to be how I buy coffee. I can't imagine that. Therefore, it's destined to zero. To think about the other path. Crypto is a technology that allows money to move over the Internet. It can move money 1,000 times faster and 1,000 times cheaper than the largest financial institutions in the world. Uh, weigh that at least equally with that other view.
1: It's much more interesting than people reflexively dismiss. So as the crypto world becomes more commoditized, Mm -hmm. right, Um, you know, I I think about the ETF world using using your uh, previous career Uh, and we see the race to zero in fees, you see transaction costs going down, Um, you know, as an investor in these areas, you know, how do you think about that with the commoditization, too? Because you're you're talking about Uniswap and, Mm -hmm. you know, generating 200 million in revenue. But over time, competition will force those costs down. I mean, that, that's the goal of competition, right? Yeah. So how do you think about that as an investor? And what are kind of the risks to that part of the equation as an investor in it? Mm. Are we just still in that, you know, explosive, we call it the convex moment in the bond world, right? <laughs> you know, the hockey stick, you know, or, or well, other people say to the moon now right. in the meme world, right? Right. So h- how do you get those things together?
2: Yeah, I do think eventually crypto will be boring. I think that's the answer to it. Eventually it'll be boring. Uh, it'll be low cost. It'll be- Like the t- internet. Like the internet, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but the scale is so much larger. It's still so exceedingly early in crypto. Most investors have zero exposure to it. We haven't even developed basic regulations to unlock the potential. Many people are reflexively skeptical. So I do think there will be a a, a strong uh, drive to zero on fees um, and I do think the assets will eventually not be that interesting from an investment perspective, but I think we're five to 10, maybe more years out from that. Uh, if you think about early stage, it's, it's, it's nice to think back to the internet. One advantage I have of being in the crypto industry and being 45 years old is that I've seen things like the internet go through periods of hype, speculation, and growth. Um, and you think about like, like Amazon stock, and it went way up in 1999 and came way crashing down in 2000. Uh, and then it started to recover. But that barely registers today, right? Now it's at 3000 dollars a share or whatever. You can't even see 1999. <laughs> and I think crypto is still in that phase. Until we have not just a Bitcoin ETF, but a bunch of crypto asset ETFs, until most portfolios have an allocation to crypto and its markets, until we have clear regulation that allows DeFi to compete side-by-side side with centralized finance, we're still in that convex moment.
1: Yeah. Uh, How does DeFi ever get to—because they don't have the lobbyists that the financial industry have. How how do do they get their seat at the table?
2: It's a very good question. You know, there is this—it doesn't have lobbyists, but it has this incredible community. And I'll give you a very specific example that happened recently. In the infrastructure bill, the first piece of bipartisan legislation that I can remember, where both the Senate and the House agreed on spending, you know, a trillion dollars on infrastructure. It's now gummed up uh, by Senator Manchin. But— There was a crypto provision that was part of how it would be paid for that the crypto industry didn't like because it was poorly worded and too broad. And the community responded with an overwhelming letter writing, email calling, political donation campaign that stopped process on the infrastructure bill for two days. And on the floor of the Senate, they were debating consensus mechanisms (laughs) and whether we should, you know, only do proof of work or only do proof of stake. So it doesn't have lobbyists in the same traditional sense, but it does have this incredibly robust and mobilizable social community uh, that I think the political impact of crypto is going to be really interesting to watch. So in the it's almost
3: like G and the ESG part again, right, that yeah. you're talking about?
2: It was, it was, there was like a halcyon call on crypto. This is not a drill. And literally, there's every possible campaign. My favorite one, guys, uh, there was a campaign, apparently every senator has to have a fax machine. And there was a campaign to, like, <laughs> overwhelm the fax machines with pro-crypto fax messages. Machine, I, I like yeah. the vision of Harry Potter, uh, the Harry Potter movie where those, those letters come in uh, to the house, like a billion faxes for crypto. Um, but, yeah, I think there is this incredible
1: crypto political community that's probably underrated. You know, you, you mentioned the fax machines. And I, I've always been nonplussed by, you know, the techno- technological innovations and that they still exist. <laughs> Right. I mean, the, the fact that they still, still necessary. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I'll tell you, and, and this is no slight to our, our back office that we hire, but our derivatives trading had to be sent via fax. Derivatives. <laughs> we can settle bonds over the phone, yeah.
3: but we had to fax the derivatives trades. Like, and that imagine make- this coming through during the pandemic when no okay. one's going in the office and right. certain things were hampered by the fact that we couldn't get access to a fax we we
1: did have that problem in the first week by the way it was a little strange like someone had to go because we were getting the faxes at the office like oh you got to be kidding me it's got to be a better way so that's amazing matt this is awesome as always i learned so much from listening to you you're just a great educator like just the way you you simplify just complex concepts is great um you know you, you can see that writing influence that you've had and you know you're just you're just a humble guy and we really really appreciate you taking the time so um, for you, how, how do our listeners, the 15 now including uh, Sam's mom, how do they get access to what you're putting out there in the world? How do they follow you? L- let them know.
2: Yeah, Sam's mom and your other listeners, uh, two ways. You can come to bitwiseinvestments.com and there's a, there's a form you can fill in to get a notification from us. What that amounts to is a monthly letter on crypto from me. So we won't inundate you with a thousand things. You can also follow me at uh, Matt underscore Hogan, which is HOUGAN on Twitter. I don't tweet as much as I should, but every once in a while I just I try to say something, okay?
1: I always uh, tell people, if you, you want some information for us, give me your business card or send us an email and we promise you free spam for life. You know, so, so uh, you know, so anyway, uh, my sales staff won't like that as much out there. But uh, anyway, Matt, it was a pleasure. We really enjoyed it. Hopefully our listeners gleaned a lot from here, uh, bringing people in that are innovators out here. I think you're doing a great job. Keep up the great work. However, before you leave, we got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show.
3: All right, Matt, and that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Jeff, to which I hope to get a top-of-mind response something that the good Professor Schiller calls a verbal Rorschach test. So (laughs) you try to keep the answers back to one word or less, or one word, I guess. Less is not preferable. Less is is not preferable. Sorry about that. So one word, but uh, try to keep it concise if you can't stay within the lines like Sherman and keep it to one word. So I'm going to kick it off with the example here of fiat money to Sherman.
1: Antiquated. Sure (laughs) seems like it after sitting here. I'm
3: sold. beyond bitcoin
1: very interesting
3: 24 hour a day 7 days a week 365 days a year market when do you sleep i <laughs> no, don't, yeah, no, <laughs> don't sleep yeah i mean <laughs> so what,
1: okay so the only thing i got about that all you technical analysts out there someone send me an email you know s- send it to uh don't send it to me directly oh. and tell me how on technical analysis you're going to use the closing price on this you know, continuous market. Exactly. So all this says is actually, uh, I'll get a little wonky here too. So this is where the one word answer goes away. Um, but this is the optimal application of calculus. It's not discrete time. We have continuous time here. Mm. So this is where my math nerds out there, we can rejoice. <laughs>
3: That is good though. I mean, you, you took the first one in one word, so antiquated. I, oh, I love that. It. I That's going to stick in my head. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, back to you, Matt. Mutual funds. Dead Man Walking. Oh, tech. Tact- uh, actually, no, minor league baseball. I would almost say
1: Dead Man Walking. <laughs> Keep it alive. Yes. Keep it alive. It's it's Americana. I mean, it's, it's a it's a great form of entertainment out there. Um, baseball has been great this year, you know, it thrives off of this. There's a better way to make the system, you know, they need to pay the players better. We, you know, we talked about the power of labor lately, right. And how labor is getting upper hand, you know, they got to do something for these minor league players to, to compensate them a little bit better. But, you know, you wouldn't have some of the players you see in the majors today without a robust system. And, you know, like everybody needs a shot. You know, I mean, look, that's this right. is how you get in finance, Matt, me, you know, you know, look, I would have never, never had a scoreboard job without it. So, um, you know, that that's my, my first bean counting job right there.
3: So. All right. As long as you guys, what was it? Uh, do we ever figure out what author, authoritarian? Is that authoritarian positive or negative? ETFs, is that yeah. positive or negative? Depends on who you ask. Uh, yeah. <laughs> ETF dictator. All right. Back to you, Matt, with, uh, artificial intelligence for investing. Ooh. Uh interesting but still a little
1: ways off still a little ways off i think it's interesting i want to know what, yeah. what jeff thinks about that yeah. i i All you right. know what i what i think about it is like the application it seems there i've I, my whole career i've heard of neural networks and right. how we're going to mm-hmm. solve these problems and i, I think so part of the challenge is is that it's still programmed by humans i know it's learning from the data set out there and that's the grail but you know when the computer becomes smarter than us and solves it, then then I'll buy in a little bit more. And and maybe we're there, we're on the cusp of it. You know? I'll, I'll
2: add one thing, yeah. Just, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, st- I'll steal a few more words, uh, or we could string these together into one words. I'm on the board of a, an AI-driven investing company uh, called Equibot, and the amount of information that Equibot processes on a daily basis is mind-blowing. Yeah. I think, uh, and I think the investment results are interesting um, and worth considering. I'll also say this, I think, Soon it will be the case that every investment manager that's not using AI as a complement to what they're doing is going to be left behind. Uh, I think that will be true before it's just all computers. Yeah. Uh, but I think, I think we're very close to that moment.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with that because like being data-driven, it's process, right? Yeah. And if you can have something that synthesizes that, it really is helpful, right? Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. Superpower. Yeah. Financial innovation. I'm, I'm noodling on it because I, I want to say something snarky, but I won't. I was <laughs> going to say there is none. Bring, you know, <laughs> bring um, the snark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say there is none because, you know, everybody's idea is someone else's, it feels like. Um, you know, it's it's not stymie. It's not stifled. And I do think, you know, this is the entrepreneurial spirit of America, right? I mean, this is this is the place people come to become capitalists and do those things. And I think there is innovation. And if you don't believe me, rewind this track right now and listen <laughs> to Matt again. <laughs> Love it.
3: Unhackable. Unhackable.
2: Uh, I think Bitcoin's unhackable. My lawyers want me to caveat that, but um, they get paid to, to caveat it. <laughs> yeah. They do get paid yeah. in caveats, yeah. and they get a lot. Yeah. Um uh, yeah, I, th- I, think, I, think, I think the answer to that is Bitcoin. It's the largest honeypot in the world. If you could hack it, it's a trillion dollars. But it has not only technological protections, but game theoretic protections that are very significant and make economic-driven hacking uh, impossible to, to execute. Uh, and for that reason, I think it's basically unhackable.
3: All right.
1: I'm not going to argue with him.
3: <laughs> Nor I. <laughs> Midtown Manhattan.
1: Unhackable. <laughs> oh wait, did I get that backwards? Uh, coming back, it's coming back.
3: Nice. Bursting the Bowden bubble.
2: Bursting the Bowden bubble. Oh my God, this is—you really went way back. No, no,
3: this is uh, kudos to Mark Kimbrough. He helps out a lot on these uh wow. questions. So uh, I know he we, digs we deep. Have, sometimes. We have a research staff at Double
1: Line. <laughs> mean. I know you don't believe that we do research, but yeah,
2: this is <laughs> the incredible. Best reaction
3: we've had so. Uh.
2: Uh exciting. I have to tell the story. It's a one-minute cool, it. story. It's a beautiful story. My junior year of college, I went to Bowdoin in Maine, small liberal arts school. I convinced the college to pay me to write a guide to Maine to give to all of the students. I was the most popular person on campus that summer because I hired all my friends to like go out and review restaurants on the college's dime. We wrote this book. It was a beautiful book. I didn't know that when you write A guidebook—you have to say only positive things. I thought you could actually evaluate things (laughs) for what they were.
3: Go figure. And
2: (laughs) uh, I learned that that was not the case when, shortly after its publication, uh, we were sued by a camera shop in town for writing a negative review of the camera shop. Uh, It turned into this huge thing. The ACLU backed us. We were going to court, and then the last day I graduated. The college came to me and said they wanted to end this. They bought all the remainder copies of the books, which was like, like $12,000, which are books, which is a huge amount of money for me at the time. Um, this is as I was graduating. And then my wife and, and, and uh, my girlfriend, now wife, used that money to travel around the world for a year.
3: That's funny, it all snowballed down you know downhill since then with all the hate and vitriol and all the online reviews now. it's, right, it's uh, true it's yeah. true
1: i mean what is it con- was it considered libelous it was that was that
2: was the the basis that's, that's of the good. lawsuit yeah. they actually i don't don't think they were that interested in suing a uh, a graduating philosophy major. I think yeah. they were interested in suing the college, yeah. but they named me in the suit, yeah, yeah. they considered it libelous. Um, I was the photo editor of the paper. I knew a lot about this shop, yeah. I felt very strong <laughs> but it was it was a, it was a An eye opening moment on both sides.
1: All right. The truth will not always set you free.
2: No, I guess not.
1: I guess not.
3: That's all. That was it. That's it. (laughs) These guys Uh, are uh, both uh, looking uh, at me uh, expectantly. I I mean, we just saw another 20 minutes of this. These (laughs) one word
1: answers we just keep providing you. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for humoring us today. Thanks for tuning in to the show. Um, You know, again, Matt Hogan, you know, it's a pleasure as always. Um, you know, go out there, go to the Bitwise website, get some more information, learn more, and I can't wait to see you next time and what we're going to talk about next time. So thanks again. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, take care.
0: The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty As to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk.